Our scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 14. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles or in your worship guide where you can find the passage printed on page 12. If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And before we read, I would remind you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Romans 14, verses 1 to 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Corey. We've mentioned before that we are giving thought to what it, would look, what it would look like to be a healthy church. We are praying that we would be a healthy church, that we would be a faithful and a fruitful church. This is stemming from a, a conference that some of your elders went to last fall. And at that conference, one practice that we were uh, encouraged to take up as part of that is to remember, uh, to give thanks to God for his faithfulness to us. And towards that end, uh, we plan to celebrate our 10-year anniversary, which is coming up uh, this spring. So the third Sunday in April, April 21st, as part of our gathered worship service, uh, we are making plans to remember, to celebrate, to give thanks to God, and then we have our meal following that service. So take note of that. We, we'll, we'll have more information on that in the coming weeks. But that's one thing we can think of when we think about being a healthy church. Uh, another one I thought of this week, you won't find this in books or conferences on a healthy church, but I think this could be said to be another mark of a healthy church from Romans 14. We could say that one mark of a healthy church would be a church that disagrees with one another. Now let me explain. Disagreements are a normal part of life. So we will disagree sometimes simply because we are different. 
We have different backgrounds. We grew up in different homes. We have different ways of seeing things and doing things, and we emphasize different things. So we will disagree because we're different, but we also at times will disagree because we sin, because we are all still learning and growing and being sanctified by our Lord and Savior. So there are different reasons for our disagreements. Some may be better than others, but think about it. If there was never any disagreement here, one of at least two things would be true of us, and neither one of those would be signs of a healthy church. Either we would not be honest with one another, we would be fake, which is not healthy, or we wouldn't be living in close enough community and fellowship with one another for those disagreements to come out, to be, na- to be made known, which is also not healthy. So we could say that one mark of a healthy church is a church that disagrees, but for that statement to be true, the following one must be true as well. A church with people that disagree is the mark of a healthy church to the degree that the people of that church also love and welcome one another even though they disagree. And so that's one way of looking at what we read in Romans 14 today. Here's another way that we could summarize the main point, keeping our Romans outline in mind. The life of gratitude for the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has saved us from our guilt calls us now to accept and love one another when we disagree on matters of personal opinion or issues of conscience. Or we might say it the way Paul says it at the end of this section, Romans 14, 1, pretty much all the way through uh, chapter 15 and verse 7 is, is one teaching with different applications. And at the end of Romans 15, 7, he says this, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so today, I want to communicate that main point by answering these four questions. First, how has Christ welcomed you? Second, what's the context for this instruction to welcome one another? Then, what does it mean to welcome one another? And then finally, how does the coming judgment of God actually give us hope? So first of all, how has Christ welcomed you? We begin with the foundation for these instructions. And Paul actually gives us four great truths in this passage that provide a firm and glorious foundation for welcoming each other with our differences. And as we look at these, I want you to know, beloved, that these are true of all who trust in Jesus. These are true of you, and they are also true of all the saints in Christ Jesus here at Proclamation. So here's the first one. God himself has welcomed you in Jesus Christ. Verse three, Paul writes, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. So the foundation for our love and acceptance of one another, even though we disagree, is that God himself has accepted us in Jesus Christ. Beloved, God has welcomed you. Now, what does that mean? It means that God has redeemed you in Jesus Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, just simple questions and answers that communicate what the Bible teaches. Ask this question, verse 20, or question 29. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? 
And the answer gives us this. We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. So the way that God has welcomed us, the way he has accepted us in Christ Jesus is through the work of his Son and the work of his Spirit. The Son, Jesus Christ, has purchased redemption for us through his life and his death and his resurrection. And then this is applied to us. We receive this free gift through the work of the Spirit. Through regeneration, we must be born of the Spirit. We must be born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. God makes us alive when we were dead. So God is the one who takes the initiative. We don't come to him and ask him, will you accept me, please? We don't change our opinions to conform to his. We didn't clean up our lives and do better or live better in order to please him. No, as Dustin reminded us earlier, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, it was then that Christ died for us. While we were still blind to his glory, while we were deaf to his call, while we were dead in sin, it was then that the Holy Spirit came to us and raised us from the dead. He breathed life into us. He essentially said to you, you will be mine. I will be your God and you will be my child. I love you, I will forgive you, and I will change you. Beloved, we were lost. And God sent his only son to seek and to save the lost. And he came and he found you and he brought you home and he made you accepted in the beloved. So if we are going to welcome and love and accept those in the church that we disagree with, it begins by understanding, by being grateful for the common welcome that we have received from God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. Second, second great truth we see here is that God is your judge and you will be upheld. God is your judge and you will be upheld. God has made you stand. He is able to make you stand and he will make you stand. Verse four, Paul asks the question, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And even in that statement, isn't there that glorious truth? that we are servants of Christ Jesus. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make you stand. Beloved, God is your judge, and you will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make you stand. The Lord is able to make you stand because he has justified you through his Son, and you're not in the courtroom anymore. The Shorter Catechism, question 33, asks that question, what is justification? And justification is an act of God's free grace. It means it's something that God has done, that he's completed in the life of his children, and it's his free grace towards us. So justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins, and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So as we've made our way through the book of Romans, we are asking these questions. Beloved, in the eyes of God, your judge, 
How much sin is in your account? None. That is amazing. None. The Lord does not remember your sins. He does not hold them against you. Though you are adding to that number every day, they're not in your account anymore. So I know that by now you know the answer to that question. It rolls off your tongue easily, but let it hit your heart. Believe it. How much sin is in your account? None. Zero. And how much righteousness? All of it. The full amount, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We sang about this earlier, right? Before the throne of God above. Did you let those words hit home? When Satan tempts me to despair. And beloved, he'll do that every day. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. It's not only Satan that does this. Sometimes your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ do this to you. When Satan tempts you to despair, when a fellow believer tempts you to despair and tells me of the guilt within, where do you look? Don't look within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Jesus made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just. God the judge is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. Hallelujah. Beloved, every believer will be upheld in the final judgment, including you and including those that you disagree with. Every believer will stand accepted on that day, including you and those you disagree with. Every believer is going to receive this incredible warm welcome from Christ, including you and those you disagree with. The weakest believer you know will be upheld by the Lord and will stand glorious and vindicated and loved and forgiven and righteous and accepted in the last day. That's good news for me. And that's good news for you. If we're going to welcome and love and accept those that we disagree with in the church, we must remember that God is the judge, not us, and that he will make us stand. Third, you belong to the Lord. Verse 8, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The prophet Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God has created you. He has redeemed you. He's called you by name. You are his. You belong to him. Not only did he make you, he also bought you. So you are twice his. Paul says in Acts chapter 20 to the elders from Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What a wonderful way to think about your brothers and sisters in Christ. They have been purchased, they've been obtained by God with the blood of his own son. So God has made this purchase to make you his own. 
So if we are going to welcome and love and accept those that we disagree with in the church, we must remember that we belong to the Lord. He has accepted us. He has made us his own in Christ. And then the fourth great truth, Christ died and lived again truly. He he truly did this in the flesh. He died and he lived again so that he might be your Lord forever. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Paul will say it like this in 1 Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath. Well, what has he destined us for? To obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So in this passage, Paul talks about the one who is weak in faith. And as we consider that, we must begin with this foundation. Beloved, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is Jesus Christ alone who saves. Faith unites us to the Christ who saves. And that faith is a gift from God. It's not a work that you merit. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So none of us can boast. And the opposite is true as well. None of us need despair. It is Christ who truly died. It is Christ who truly lived again so he might be your Lord forever. It is Christ who saves. It is the crucified, buried, and risen Savior who has made you accepted, not the strength of your faith. So your faith, whether it is big or small, whether it's strong or weak, whether it is firm or frail, unites you to Christ. The weakest faith still unites you to the strongest Savior. One pastor said it like this, even a tiny faith has the whole Christ. Amen? As we think about this, we also have to remember that God does not welcome everyone into his family. The gospel call, the invitation goes out to all. And God will indeed welcome any and all who come to him. But this welcome is given exclusively to those who rely on Jesus. The only ones who will be welcome are those who realize they haven't earned this welcome. That they never could get in on the basis of their own merit, their own works. And so they don't depend on their own right living to be welcomed. Instead, what do we depend on? Beloved, our hope, our, our dependence is upon the crucified and dead and buried and risen, living, reigning Savior. Amen. Jesus is the hope for our welcome. When standing in judgment, our defense is not self-focused. Our hope is not, we don't, we don't say, I'm not guilty. We don't say, well, I did all of these good things. I'm a good person. No, what is our defense? Our defense is Jesus Christ. Their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. They dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So if we are going to welcome and love and accept those in the church that we disagree with, we must see them as those for whom Christ died and lived again that he is their Lord forever. 
So we start with these four great truths. It's these truths of the gospel that give us this firm, this glorious foundation for loving and welcoming one another with our differences. Beloved, God has welcomed you in Jesus Christ. You will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make you stand. You belong to the Lord, and Christ died and lived again truly, so he might be your Lord forever. So we start there. Now, second question. What's the setting? What's the context for this instruction to welcome one another? Now, it's essential that we understand that Paul is not talking about differences or disagreements that are sin issues or that are uh, matters of heresy or gospel issues. He's not talking about things that Christians must do or must not do or things that Christians must believe. So we could say he's not talking about adultery. He is not talking about any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Why? Because that is always wrong. That is never right. There's not room for disagreement among believers on that issue. It is crystal clear in the scriptures. He's also not talking about believing that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or maybe is it by faith plus works. Again, scripture is crystal clear. Paul will say we are, there's no one who can be justified by works. So we are grateful that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Those are not the kind of issues he's talking about. Paul's writing to people who give thanks to God. He's writing to people who seek to honor the Lord in everything that they do. Now, they might have the opposite outward behavior and the same issue. But what he's saying is, Their heart motive, their heart desire, their heart submission is the same. They love King Jesus, and they are submitting every area of their lives for his honor. Their differences are in their convictions about what behaviors are unclean, what behaviors might give more glory to God. And even on this point, again, these differences only relate to non-essential things. So perhaps a good example for us would be this, whether or not we drink alcohol. Now there are some Christians who don't drink alcohol at all, and there are others who drink it in moderation. The scriptures do not forbid the drinking of alcohol. The scriptures do give us guidelines. The scriptures say, do not get drunk. And there are other principles and commands in Scripture that would apply to our approach to this issue, such as submit to your governing authorities. So we have two guiding principles that apply at least. One is, if you do drink, don't get drunk. That's wrong. And you should be of legal age. So there's some guiding principles. But this is an area that Christians have different views on, different practices on. Maybe you grew up in a home where you saw the devastating effects of alcohol abuse. And so for you, you don't want to go there at all. And you avoid it. Maybe you didn't grow up in that at all. And so it hasn't hit you like it's hit others. And so you approach it from a different angle. It's an area where we have different opinions and practices on. But we are to love and welcome one another in the midst of our differences. Or perhaps an example for this very, very day, right? The Super Bowl. Should we watch the Super Bowl? 
Should we have a Super Bowl party or should we do something else? Now, this might be totally irrelevant because who wants to watch the Super Bowl this year? I almost wanted to. At halftime of that NFC Championship game, I was already thinking, is it okay for me to move that evening service up to 5 p.m.? But now, what's the point? Maybe I'll root for the 49ers out of love for my brothers, my sisters. Or maybe if you're a Taylor Swift fan, and I can't believe I just mentioned Taylor Swift in the sermon, I'm just giving you the opportunity to apply this passage right now. Because you might disagree with me. That should never be mentioned in the sermon, but you can love and welcome me despite our differences. So these are, these are examples. These are just examples. But our text mentions two points of conflict and disagreement. So in verse 2, one person eats anything and others eat only vegetables. This has to do with Old Testament laws about clean and unclean foods. It's not about being a vegetarian today. It has to do with Old Testament laws. In verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day as better than another. Others esteem all days alike. This has to do with Old Testament feast days. You can read about them in Leviticus. So Paul's writing, think about the context. Paul's writing to the church at Rome. It's a multi-ethnic church. It's filled with Jewish Christians, and it's filled with Gentile Christians. And those Jewish Christians, how did they grow up? They grew up learning the Old Testament law. They grew up being taught, you can eat these foods, you can't eat these foods. You celebrate these days, you practice these days. And it was hard for them now that those, they're, being, they're, they're learning, those laws have been fulfilled in Christ. They no longer had to observe the ceremonial laws anymore, but it was hard for them to change their habits, the ways they had been living from their youth. The Gentile Christians didn't grow up with that same teaching, so they weren't following those laws. That's the context. That's the conflict. But before we move on, I want to say two things about the days that Paul mentions. First of all, I want to make it clear, Paul is not talking about the Lord's Day. He's not talking about the Christian Sabbath here, but about the feast days in Leviticus. Now, I say that because if you have an ESV study Bible, which I imagine many of you may have, I have one, and I use it, and it's helpful. If you have an ESV study Bible, and you read the note on this passage, it will tell you that Paul is talking about the Lord's Day. So here's the note. The weak thought some days were more important than others. Given the Jewish background here, the day that is supremely in view is certainly the Sabbath. The strong think every day is the same. Both views are permissible. Each person must follow his own conscience. What's remarkable is that the Sabbath is no longer a binding commitment for Paul, but a matter of one's personal conviction. Unlike the other nine commandments in Exodus 20, the Sabbath commandment seems to have been part of the ceremonial laws of the Mosaic Covenant, like the dietary laws and the laws about sacrifices, all of which are no longer binding on New Covenant believers. That's the study note in the ESV Study Bible. And I say, no, no, no. No, the Sabbath is rooted in in creation. It's repeated in the Ten Commandments. It is practiced and commanded in the New Testament. We could have a whole sermon on that. Maybe we will. But my point here is this. Study notes and study Bibles can be helpful, but they're not the Bible. They're not infallible. They're not inerrant. They're written by men. It's not the Word of God. So, use discernment. Be careful if you're reading those notes. Don't accept it as the Word of God. At times, they can be unhelpful, even harmful or wrong. 
Now, having made that clarification, I want to also ask one one more question about these days. What about us today? Most of us aren't debating whether or not we should be practicing these feast days. Some of you may be. But we think more about days like Christmas and Easter or Advent and Lent. And I was helped greatly by, I listened to a sermon on this passage by Matt Purdy, one of our, uh, he's a pastor in the PCA, Carlisle Reformed Presbyterian Church. I really appreciated what he had to say. So does this apply to days like Christmas and Easter and Advent and Lent? And his answer, which I agree with, is yes and no. Yes and no. So we'll start with the no. These holidays, these dates on the church calendar are man-made. They're not in the scripture. So, So no, Paul's not speaking directly to them. He's talking about the Old Testament feast days. But yes, the general principle can apply to these days, which is what? Welcome and love those you disagree with. So Christians will disagree on how they view these days and whether or not to celebrate these days. And that's perfectly okay. It's okay to not celebrate or participate in these days at all. And it's also okay to participate or celebrate if we, as long as we're not doing that or saying things about them in a way that contradicts the scriptures. So it's okay if we don't say anything about Lent. We don't participate in it in any way. It's okay if we would never make mention of Easter Sunday. That's 100% okay. But if we do, we must do so in a way that's consistent with the teachings of Scripture. So we, in our, in our worship guide today, there's uh, an announcement about Lent lunches that are taking part in our community. Those are 100% optional. So if you want to enjoy a free meal, If you want to enjoy fellowship with other believers, if you want to go and hear a devotional, an exposition of the word of God, perhaps use it as an outreach and invite others to join you, do it in honor of the Lord. And maybe you'll be particularly interested if Colin or Justin is giving the message that day. We'll let you know if that day comes. But if you don't want to go, good for you. Don't go. You're perfectly free in honor of the Lord. So that's a context here. Paul is addressing areas that were of particular importance to the church at Rome, non-essential matters. And when we disagree on these things, we are to welcome one another. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to welcome one another? We're welcome to love those that we disagree with, but not to quarrel with them. Not to quarrel with them. Paul knows the tendency of our hearts, right? So, so this is what he's saying. Don't go up to someone all friendly in church, don't invite them to come into your home just to argue with them, just to try to convince them of your view. Instead, remember that because God has welcomed your brother and your sister in Christ, you also are to welcome them. You're not to despise them. You're not to look down on them because they don't enjoy the freedom that you do. And you're not to judge them. That is not your job. That's not your role. That's not your calling. You are not his master. You're not the boss of them. You are not their judge. God is. And what does Paul say? God will make him stand. Now those you disagree with in these disputable matters, they are going to pass God's judgment. They're going to pass. They're going to get a, as good a grade as you are. You see the matter differently? God will make them stand. To welcome them 
The word actually means to, to draw in or to adjust your life in order to have a deeper relationship with people that you disagree with, that you differ from. So this means that we do practice hospitality. And one of the great ways to do that is to have people into your home. Not to quarrel with them, but to get to know them on a deeper level. To listen to them, to love them, to care for them. And we can do that also here in church. We warmly greet one another. We greet one another in a way that communicates, we are glad you are here. We love you. We want you here. It makes us happy that you are here. And how much more does that mean to someone if they know that you disagree with them on something? But you set that aside because of your common love for Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Paul says, Before his own master he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Again, this means that God has welcomed him. God has justified him. So why would you do the opposite? Why would you do the opposite? Why would you condemn or judge the one that God has justified? Why would you call unclean the one God has made and calls clean? Think about the way that we treat one another here in the church. Do you treat others in a way that would tempt them to value your judgment and what you think of them more than God's judgment? Do you want them to fear and seek to please you rather than to fear and seek to please the Lord their God? Do you want to be found treating a beloved saint in Christ the opposite of the way that God treats her? Do you want to influence him to believe a lie rather than the truth of the gospel? Beloved, if we do not welcome the ones we disagree with, if we despise them, if we judge them, we, by our actions, are actually pointing them away from Jesus rather than towards Jesus. And that is not what we want to do. We are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Here's some good news for us today. Whether, whatever side we're on this, if, if we are hindering people or helping people, you know, one day the welcome that you receive from Jesus Christ, it will no longer be hindered or hampered or confused or misconstrued or clouded in any way by fellow Christians, by fellow believers. They will not rain on your parade. They won't tamper or temper your joy or your freedom or your peace. And you know, the reality is most of us rain on that parade enough ourselves. Every week you come here and you hear these words. Believer in Jesus Christ, you are free from the guilt and the power of sin and death. You hear those words every Sunday here. But so often... We don't live like that's true. So often, it doesn't feel like that is true. So often, we don't treat our brothers and sisters, the saints in Christ, as if that is true. Nevertheless, beloved, it is true. So every night, 
when you lay your head on your pillow to go to sleep. You can sleep in peace knowing that God has welcomed you. So I would contend and encourage us, how about we all be part of God's welcoming party now? I want to close with this word of hope, this last question. How does the coming judgment of God give us hope? How does it give us encouragement? Paul ends this section in verse 12 by saying this, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And I think he says this for a twofold purpose in this context. First, this is one last reminder. Don't ask your brother or your sister to give an account to you. Don't despise him. Don't look down on him. You're not the one he has to give an account to. So that's, that's the first reason, a reminder. But second, I think there's also this reminder. In this account that you will give, you will stand. So this coming accounting, this day of judgment, for the child of God, it's not to be a cause of fear or worry or anxiety. This is a, actually a word of encouragement and hope. It's a cause for rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is meant to spur you on to further gratitude, that we would be like the church at Rome. Paul says they gave thanks to God, that in view of God's mercy in everything that we do, we would do it in honor of the Lord. The day of judgment for every believer, from the strongest in faith to the weakest in faith, that will be the best day of your Christian life. On that day, you will no longer doubt whether God's grace is sufficient enough to cover all your sin. On that day, finally, all your sin, all your pain, all your misery, gone. Lifted. The weight is off your shoulders. Joy and peace and love and freedom and thanksgiving will abound. Your every tear will be wiped away. Your every longing will be fully satisfied in Christ. Every battle, every struggle that you have with sin will be over. Every doubt will be gone. No more hypocrisy, no more regret, no more people-pleasing, no more despising, no more judging. Beloved, you will see your Savior face to face. And his glory will be shining on you, not with a scowl, but with the fullness of joy and acceptance. Paul says in Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. That's your future, beloved. Amen.